this week we're on days 106 to 112 and we're reading from deuteronomy and transitioning into the book of joshua for our old testament reading as we get to the end of deuteronomy we hear a lot of speech from moses and part of it is his farewell speech part of it he's um, relaying the words of the lord AJ, what stuck out to you in these last several chapters of Deuteronomy? That really lingers. <laughs> it does. If you hit it a second time, it stops it. Oh, okay. But I didn't want to reach out. Good and, to know. And I think it matched the lingering of the silence. Yeah, no, it fit. Have you guys ever taken verses from Deuteronomy 29 through 34 out of context? Because I have. <laughs> Start with yours and maybe one will come to mind. Sure. But I don't know that I have. Yeah. So the verse, uh, chapter 30, verse 19, Moses says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Love the Lord your God, obey him, and remain faithful to him, for he is your life. Well, I was doing the closing for Amnion's fundraising banquet, and based on all that had happened there, I was like, you know what? I think I can appropriate Moses' words here and use them as a benediction as I close the thing out. But I felt a little bit awkward about taking the verses out of context. So I just told people, I'm taking these verses out of context, <laughs> but I think they're appropriate for our setting. So I'm going to appropriate. I tried to make a joke like that. It didn't land. But then I gave the blessing and, and then people left. So oh, okay. <laughs> Hopefully they already gave all that they were going to. People cap their pens and yep. put them back in their purses. <laughs> um, but I do think it's a meaningful verse. Oh, yeah, I could. All right, I could see that. One thing that made me curious was 2929. Secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. What are the secret things that belong to the Lord? What's that talking about? I mean, I guess we don't know because they're secret. That was just kind of like a random, like almost single line where it's like, whoa, hey. Yeah, what what does the study Bible note say on that verse? Not everything that is true of God has been revealed. Hmm. That there are secret things anticipates the need to trust, obey, and be humble before God. What God has revealed is for the sake of obedience kind of helpful there probably isn't any answer because it's like well if they're god's secrets and uh nobody knows them but that was just really interesting it was just a random like stick out verse where it's like hey now i'm curious about that yeah i mean i think that is uh a good question and i don't know the answer i would just speculate that it may be that there's a question about the relationship God had to the individuals who uh, he cursed and brought judgment on these sorts of things, or like the, the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah or something like that. The content of the hidden things, I don't know, but obviously they're drawing attention to the fact that they know everything that they need for life and godliness and to live and prosper in the land and avoid God's judgment. But, yeah, that's a good question. I haven't thought about that. What are the the hidden things? If you guys talk about it for a second, I'll grab my CSB study Bible. Ooh. Let's see. Moses wrote a really long song, but it was a song to be remembered. Basically, when everything's going bad, they're like, he left you with this little ditty that explains what's up. Not that little, though, right? Oh, right. This is like a... It's like American Pie. It's a long song. 
That's a sad song as well. Do you like that song? Is it the one that says "Bye Bye Miss American Pie"? Yeah. Isn't it like written in memory of a tragic accident? I have no clue, actually. I think that's the case. Hmm. I don't think that the note in here is that helpful. Okay. Maybe the message translation would shed light on at least how we should take this verse. It says, God, our God, will take care of the hidden things, but the revealed things are our business. It's up to us and our children to attend to all the terms in this revelation. Now that I'm thinking of it, uh, you're basically an expert in whatever language this was written in, Hebrew. What's the Hebrew words? Hashtag not an expert. Okay. But you know some of it, right? Yeah. Let me... Maybe the Hebrew words would reveal. We could do our own interpretation Ooh, hidden, based on the Hebrew. Hidden and revealed. Yeah. Well, let me see what these guys say. We're just we're just deep diving on this. Couple words. Thanks. Uh, thanks for bearing with us, everybody. Yeah, and this one says the secret things belong to the Lord. Yeah, let me grab the old uh, Hebrew. The old yeah. The ancient Hebrew. The original tongue of the text. Well, maybe. We don't know. Oh. oh, possibly the original tongue of the text, but probably not. Disclaimer. No, I think it's pretty close. But there, there is... pretty close. You know how, like, English letters take different shape over time? So it used to be that S's looked, looked like F's I had kind no, of now? no clue of that. I told you I don't read much. Okay. <laughs> That's fine. I, I was more saying that to you, AJ. Oh. I expect more out of him on this on this account. <clears throat> Sounds right. But we've all looked at old books before in uh, like I bet oh. in like Declaration of Independence it looked that way. I went to a couple Shakespeare plays though. Couldn't understand a word they were saying the entire time. Then again I was in high school, but I feel like I probably still would not understand a single word they're yeah. saying. Okay, here you go. So I guess it's called the medial S. Like paradise lost. Hmm. So you know how script changes over time? Oh. That's what I'm talking about with Hebrew. Paradise lost. Like this. <laughs> Defiled sacrifice. <laughs> uh, it's actually sacrifice. Okay, back to Hebrew. I should have brought the old Hebrew Bible. Mm. Is it just in one big long scroll that you gotta like unfurl? That would be sweet. <laughs> no, mine is bound in a codex. Uh, now I want to do that. I have the scripture reading on Sunday. I want to <laughs> walk up there and then unfurl a scroll and then read it from that and then scroll it back up and say, this is the word of the Lord <laughs> and get the paper all like weathered looking and yellow and stuff. That'd be sweet. Yeah, you know, the translation stuff is not going to help us at all. Oh, okay. I think I could speculate a little bit Ooh. about what is going on here, um, just based on the language of, of hidden things or, or something that's hiding. Well, in the immediate context, there is warning for abandoning the, co the covenant and a remembering of all of the judgment that came down on people who failed to remember the covenant. And at the end, it says, the hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us. And it, probably there's an association with the Lord hiding from his people during the time of judgment and the Lord revealing himself to them in the book of the covenant. Because then in Isaiah 8, 17, if we turn there, Isaiah is recording that the Lord spoke to him in power to keep him from going the way of his people. Those are people who are rebelling against the Lord. And uh, he tells Isaiah to bind up the testimony, seal up the instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will wait for him. So, so maybe there's this connection between the hidden things ultimately being God hiding his ways and his face from them in times of judgment, but they have him with them, so to speak, in the law, um, which is not hidden from them. So it's kind of like this sealing up of the instruction for the disciples, perhaps. 
I, I don't know. Between those two passages, like the same word is used? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, so I just did a quick search in the Old Testament of that word for for hide, and it shows up three times, at least in that form, in Deuteronomy seven twenty, where there are people hiding from them that that are going to perish. That doesn't seem related. Twenty nine twenty nine, and then Isaiah eight seventeen. Um, but it's just tough because that actual verb or what's related there appears 118 times in the Old Testament, so who knows? This just seemed like a relevant one. Hmm. So this is what we call speculation. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I just don't know that there's a good answer. Oh, maybe there there are some other things we can speculate. This is speculation hour. Right. In Deuteronomy 13, 6. Let's turn there. <clears throat> Because remember, where we're coming across it, it is in a context of God's judgment on people for worshiping other gods, abandoning the covenant. Well, in Deuteronomy 13, 6, it says, If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your closest friend secretly entices you, saying, Let's go and worship other gods, which neither you nor your ancestors have known, any of the gods of the peoples around you, near you, or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other, do not yield to him or listen to him. So I think maybe there's also a bit of a play on that garden temptation, the temptation to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and now there's a temptation to worship gods that you don't know, perhaps so that you might find more or some kind of a secret or better knowledge through them. And at the end of Deuteronomy, they're told, you have everything that you truly need to know. Anything else that's hidden, that belongs to the Lord. It's off limits to you, and you need to trust that the knowledge that you have is is what you need to live and prosper in the land. Maybe there's something like that. What I don't know what you think about that. That sounds plausible. I like it. Yeah, and then I guess the other thing that would maybe, in Deuteronomy, that would shore up some of these things is in Deuteronomy 31, verse 18, God warns that when they've abandoned him, so 31, 17, and 18, he says that he will abandon them and hide his face from them. And then on that day, they'll say, haven't these troubles come to us because our God is no longer with us? I will certainly hide my face on that day because of the evil they have done by turning to other gods. So it seems like there is a lot of play with words between the worship of other gods, abandoning the covenant, God's hiding his face in them knowing what they need to know. So I don't know. That's a great question. That's led us on a bit of a, a chase that would be worth pursuing more. Thank you. That was more than I would have gotten. That's for sure. Well, I don't know if we actually got anything out of it other than I think we can at least reflect on the allusion to the garden, I think we could call that an illusion where there's a temptation to know something that God has not revealed, uh, you know, through eating of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, grasping to be like God, perhaps we might say. And here they're warned that the hidden things belong to the Lord and they need to follow the words that they know, the things that God has revealed which is apparently what Adam and Eve failed to do in the garden. They didn't follow the words of the Lord. So Israel is now being positioned perhaps as that new Adam going into the promised land, which is sort of like a recapitulation of the garden, the sacred land uh, that will be dedicated to God and in his worship. So maybe there's something there. I don't know. What do you think, AJ, as a guy who studies biblical theology? No, I think... You can just make whatever illusions you want. Like, oh, this seems like that's what that is. <laughs> well, it's the same author, theoretically, who's writing the whole thing. <clears throat> that's true. So one of the criteria for an illusion is, would the author have been aware of that earlier text? And in this case, we want to say yes. Right. As you were saying it, it makes sense. Sweet. The wanting to know unknown things. I mean, that's why they ate the fruit. And then, you know, yeah, I mean, I could I could see how that would make sense. Yeah, so I think um, we should talk about the way that we would relate to this verse in our day. Would it be like, don't worry about 
stuff in your life that isn't in your life, focus on what God's put in your life. Focus on what he's already revealed to you and just do that. AJ, what do you think? I liked what you said earlier about we have the law, we have the Bible, we have what God has revealed. There's a lot of stuff that he hasn't revealed. We don't know a lot of why questions for certain circumstances. We know that it's purposed by God, but it doesn't always help in, in the moment. I think you could just rely on that God has his ways and that his ways are higher than our ways, and we don't always know why or what exactly is going on. But we do have what he has revealed, and we have to trust in that. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think all throughout the Bible, there's this theme of knowledge, right, and trusting the Lord and growing in knowledge, but in the right kind of way. So I'm thinking of like 1 Corinthians 13, 12, where Paul writes that, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And it's almost maybe a parallel there where there there are things that we don't know. And and Paul has said that earlier in First Corinthians, right? If, if you say that you know, then you don't know as you ought to know. Um, but what do we know? Well, we know what these three things are, faith, hope, and love, and that's what we ought to embody in our living. Um, so there's probably a lot of application there, but that's a good start. Matthew, was there anything in Deuteronomy 29 through 34 that stuck out to you as well? Uh, we also have the sad but predicted passing of Moses, the leader of the Israelite people. Uh, similar to Aaron, he basically went up on a mountain, gathered his people. And I mean, basically, I think it was like he was just kind of struck dead as judgment. Is that accurate? I think so. In chapter 34, verse 7, the text records that Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not weak, and his vitality had not left him. So it gives the indication that Moses was in good health when he died. And if we're thinking about some of the words of that Moses had recorded in his song in chapter 32, verse 39, he says this, See now that I alone am he, there is no God but me. I bring death and I give life. I wound and I heal. No one can rescue anyone from my power. Moses just confessed that his God is the one who brings death and the one who can give life. And now we're given a picture of someone who has full vitality and he's received death. So I think ultimately we see it as an act of the Lord. Now the flip side of this could be that at this point, if you remember, there was the judgment that came on these individuals who scoped out the land. They were complaining, they were fearful. So the judgment was that essentially that whole generation would die off before they could go into the promised land. Well, it seems like Moses is the last one to die off, right? So the flip side, if we turn it on its head, is that while all of Moses's contemporaries died on these journeys along the way, God preserved him in full health and vitality to the very end. So there is, in a sense, mercy and judgment here. The judgment is brought about in the end, but there was an experience of mercy all along the way. Could that have also been so that all the people that new generation that was going that did get to go into the land that they were at least led by him for a while and learned from him and you know maybe had some what of a knowledge like a personal knowledge of him so that way when it's like hey remember these words from the lord that moses told us it'd be like oh yeah like we actually knew that guy it wouldn't just be this like mystical guy that they never met yeah, I think so. And the way that Moses is described at the end of Deuteronomy 34 really confirms that, right? No prophet has arisen again in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unparalleled for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do against the land of Egypt. So ultimately, yeah, and for all the mighty acts of power and terrifying deeds that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Now, these people lived seeing God's power in Moses and getting his final words, and there were a lot of them. 
So they they got them from the guy himself. It wasn't from a previous generation, you know, once removed from them. They heard it directly from him. So that's an act of mercy for Israel as well. What do you think, AJ? What would you disagree with in our collective interpretation of the text so far? I just think you didn't mention the episode where Moses strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. And so I think the specific judgment there was that Moses wouldn't get to enter the land. So um, that's the only other thing that I would add. Yeah, because that's why Moses was, the, that's what the judgment was traced yeah. back to. Right. So if he hadn't done that, would have he been able to enter the land maybe? Yeah, it seems like it. As we transition into the book of Joshua, we see a new leader taking over for Moses. Moses laid his hands on him. Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom. And we can cue up all of the Bible jokes about the only person who was born without parents, which is Joshua, who is the son of Nun. Oh, <laughs> uh, what a Bible zinger. Matthew, what were your observations on Joshua 1 through 8? Uh, it was good. It was almost kind of new information to me. Not not fully. I didn't realize that he was the guy that led around Jericho. I mean, as a child, you hear about that story or like the Veggie Tales where they're throwing like smoothies at the wall or whatever they're doing. But anyways, I didn't realize that it was Joshua leading them Okay, in that portion of history. And I didn't realize until just reading directly through it that he was the guy that took Moses's place. Like he filled that role. So that was kind of cool. I'm like, oh, okay. I see a little more clearly the, uh, you know, just lineage of the story or whatever yep. that, how, how it all kind of flows together. So yeah. that, that part was nice. Yeah. It can get confusing if you miss that transition of Moses to Joshua and then it gets even more confusing from there, especially as you get into Judges, as it seems like the leaders change, like, every chapter. Yeah. Because, yeah, and probably especially as a kid, like, you get the highlight stories, and you kind of hear them independently of other things. And so, at least in my case, I never really knew where a lot of those stories fell in kind of the history story of the Bible. So that was nice. I did notice a verse at the beginning Ooh. of Joshua where I've heard taken out of context. Ooh. Joshua 1, 9. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you meditate day and night so you may be careful to do all according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. Yeah, Joshua 1, 8 gets taken out of context all the time, doesn't it? Because it's a word specifically to Joshua about leading Israel and conquering the land. And when we just grab onto it and apply it to us, first of all, we are not recognizing that we're not given the same promises that are contained in there. But then I think also we diminish a really moving scene in the Bible because Joshua is now leading a nation and um, God is speaking to him. Clearly this guy is nervous. I mean, I think we all get nervous when we have to start a new job or something. Well, this guy's new job is the leader of an entire nation and a nation at war. And God speaks to him and promises to him in 1.5, I will not leave you or abandon you. And then these instructions follow. And then you see Joshua respond with faith and obedience. And we miss all of that if we just grab onto that verse and apply it like, yeah, I should memorize the Bible so that way God will get, give me what I want. Uh, that That's not what it's about. Now, because God proved himself faithful here, I think we can grab onto it, but not as directly as we might want to say we should. Directly after that portion in Joshua, just a few verses down in chapter 1, <clears throat> When I was reading this, it struck me, and I'm like, this, there has to be some humor intended here or something, because uh, Joshua, it's, it's the passage where it says Joshua assumes command, and he's basically, he's talking to the people, 
kind of like, I'm your leader now. God appointed me, whatever. And then verse 16, they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. <laughs> they didn't, they are so optimistic and not remembering their past well at all, claiming that they listened to Moses and everything he said. They drove that man crazy. Yeah. Is that, is that supposed to be like a humorous thing that they said that? Well, I, I think it's humorous is apparently we all do. Um, but obviously these individuals are the people who weren't killed by God, who are given permission to enter into the land. And it seems like these individuals probably, as we've read through Deuteronomy, were more compliant with Moses than their parents were. Okay, so this was um, the legit crowd. Yeah, all the, but... All the riffraff had been like weeded out by now. Yeah, but I think, you know, stereotypically maybe they they were better than their their parents or grandparents, oh. but I don't know that they should be speaking with this much confidence, yeah. especially when they get to verse 18 and say, anyone who rebels against your order and does not obey your words in all that you command him will be put to death. They're getting a little out over their skis with their statements there. Yeah, but this, again, is, I mean, it's kind of funny, but it also reminds us of the fact that the this is the same kind of language that Israel used when they were speaking to Moses at Sinai, right? They're saying, we'll do everything you tell us. And then he turns his back and turns around, and then they're bowing down to a golden calf. Yeah. In chapter two, we get into one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's the story of the spies who go into Jericho. They encounter Rahab. And of course, we don't know what happens with Rahab until we get to chapter six, but the good news is that we read through chapter eight Ooh. this week. So uh, what did you guys think about that story? What do you think about Rahab? And can you think of any New Testament texts that draw on this account? I think it's interesting that Rahab lies to people and is not condemned for lying. Seems like in the right situation. Seems okay to lie. Go for it. Well, I don't know that we should be that cavalier about it. <laughs> In my mind, it's the kind of lying or whatever where you have to zoom, you like, have to zoom way out because it's like if you tell the truth, you're aiding evil. Whereas if you're lying, you're aiding God's purpose. Maybe but, we don't know God's purpose and well, we, we should don't. trust his secret plans. I, that <laughs> What's could, hidden from us. That could very well be. Yeah, I think you are appealing to Wayne Grudem's ethics book where he says something similar. Yeah, I really disagree with his ethics book take on lying. Uh, he, he says things like, you don't know what will happen if you tell the truth. And truth-telling involves trusting God, so you always need to trust God. That sounds so, good. That so sounds right. if you were a German citizen hiding Jews in your basement, you don't know what will happen. So you need if, if the government asks you if you're hiding Jews, you should tell them. See, that's so I, I have not carefully read his whole section on that because I think he has to have a treat, he has to talk about Rahab. Oh, yeah, you'd think so, but I haven't had the time or the interest to carefully examine his position. Someone just sent me a picture of, of that page, so I should look at it sometime. Okay, real quick, going back to the whole thing of like Germans and if they're hiding Jews. They should, oh, yeah, yeah, we got a whole basement full of them. Why do you ask? Oh, no reason. We just need to go down there now and take all of them. Like, if you have half a brain, you know that if I lie to these German officers, I'm trying to have good come as a result of this, whereas telling the truth would result in aiding their evil. Like, you would just have, that, that's not having a brain. Because you, you know what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's tough because we read of other situations where there are individuals who are faced with death if they don't obey the Torah, and they choose to obey it, and they don't die. So you think of someone like Daniel or his friends, or in second temple literature like well, Susanna, Susan. who refused to commit adultery, right? Um, so but that's them deciding for themselves. Well, based on, on the law, right, uh, 
Yeah, I get what you're saying. They're, she's deciding for herself. Right. She's not just like, oh, yeah, um, they're up in the attic. Don't hurt me. Take yeah, them. Yeah. Like that. Yeah, I think that when you look at that story, it appears twice in the New Testament at least. It's the Hall of Faith, one of them. Yep. Or in the so-called Hall of Faith in so Hebrews called. 11. Everybody calls it that. So what is it? Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 lists a lot of people who lived by faith. And Rahab, the prostitute, is listed as one who welcomed the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. So where her surrounding society is counted as disobedient ones, she's counted as a faithful, obedient one. Uh, right. So in her in her line, she was faithful to the to the Lord. Right. Um, she was aiding the Lord's purposes and protecting his people. Yeah. And and I think, you know, there's an even broader application of the commandment not to lie. There's a there's the question of is it ever appropriate to be a spy? Uh, because that's lying with who you are. It's being deceptive. Um, yeah. And obviously that was sanctioned by the Lord here. Um, so there, there are some good questions there. But then it also shows up in the book of James, chapter 2. I've been studying James for church, so I recently came across this and thought it was interesting that there are two examples of people who live by faith um, and who show their faith with their works. One is the patriarch Abraham. The other is the prostitute Rahab. Um, so you so you have a male and a female. You have someone who you conventionally think of as righteous and someone who would not think of that way. Um, and both of them are pictures of people who live by faith. One is an Israelite, one is a non-Israelite. And I think what else is interesting is that Hebrews is addressed to Jews, James is addressed to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, and both of them include as examples of true faith a Gentile woman. So for us to grab onto that, we have to know the story in Joshua. So it's a good thing we're reading it. I would lie to the Nazis, though, just to be clear. I appreciate it. It is interesting that uh, Rahab gets mentioned in those books later on and is praised for her faith. That's substantial, I think, because it's, I mean, she basically has just heard about what's going on, and as a result of that, she just believes, like, oh, you you serve the one true God, and she basically, yeah, is very favorable to that and willing to back that instead of her whole native land and native people. I mean, you know, except her immediate family, but beyond that, she's like, I'll reject everything to to believe in the one true God. Yeah, and I think part of it goes back to that ancient idea that when a human army prevailed against another, it was also their God prevailing against the opposing army's God. So they're seeing this God is defeating a lot of other gods, and they have to decide, which God am I going to serve? Which God am I going to connect with? But that that involves, for them, an entire change of culture, because unlike some other foreign deities, where perhaps you could just add them to the ones you already worship, Yahweh, the God of Israel, does not permit any other gods to be worshipped. So it is a really radical choice she is making. It's not just an act of convenience. It's really seeing the power of the Lord. Um, and in a way that Pharaoh didn't didn't ever truly see. He saw, but he didn't see. Well, Rahab had eyes and she, she really saw. Uh, so I think also we just want to recognize that when there are individuals in these cities that end up being destroyed who determine that they'll leave their foreign gods, their pagan gods, and worship the true God, they're also spared. So it softens the blow a little bit when we think of entire cities being annihilated. They they had the same knowledge Rahab had. Um, they didn't have spies that talked to her, perhaps, but they, they knew of the power of the Lord, and they chose to stand against him. And could that <clears throat> perhaps be like a kind of have a divine purpose that, oh, the spies happened to go to her house. It's like, well, maybe for quite a while she was thinking uh, privately in her own head, like, oh, like I'm hearing about this other God. Like I'm I'm feeling led to believe in this God and reject what um, 
what my current culture is. And then it's like, then she gets that opportunity. The Lord, Lord kind of maybe hand delivers her that opportunity because it was already churning in her mind and in her heart. And then it's boom, Mm -hmm. it's there. And then she kind of jumps on it and accepts it. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. Then I think the final thing I want to say is that over and over again, we see Joshua in Israel in a position of fear and discouragement. So Joshua 1 started with the Lord telling Joshua not to be afraid or discouraged. And in chapter 8, verse 1, the Lord says the same thing again. We see it at the end of Deuteronomy 2. It starts there. Yeah. Keep hearing that, be strong and courageous. I have sometimes had a wrong perception of this because... Maybe it, maybe it's because I'm reading critical scholars or atheists who dislike Christianity because they think of Israel as this mean nation who's going and just wiping everybody out. But when you realize how much fear and discouragement is bound up in these people, you realize it's not just this dominant, um, strong group that's going out and wiping everyone out in their strength, but ultimately they are the arm of the Lord and he's using them to accomplish his purposes. But it's not them just doing what they want and attaching God's name to it. If it were up to them, they wouldn't be doing this at all. But the, but they're seeking to follow the the instruction of the Lord. Everybody except Aiken. Except oh. Aiken. And his family. When I worked at the Northland Camp and Conference Center, there was a, a preacher who preached a sermon called There's Sin in the Camp which worked really well at, at, at camp. camp. And um, <clears throat> this is, I think, a bad use. Uh, this is a bad use of the text, I think. No, it's good. But when when I was there, I thought it was a really powerful sermon. And there were some good things that were said, but he, he set up a tent in the place he was preaching, kind of like what you'd go camping in. And then in his sermon, he just had a list of objects that were like bad, and he would like pull them out and put them underneath this tent is <laughs> like an example of hiding sin. So I forget everything that he had. I think it was like iPod. CDs. Yeah. yeah iPod. Yep. DVD, like a DVD. I think maybe there was even like a Coke bottle in a brown bag that was kind of like alcohol. Um, but I just remember the title of the sermon, There's Sin in the Camp from this text. So I don't know how I would be able to if I ever preached Joshua 7, not titled the sermon, There's Sin in the Camp. And the three of us and anyone listening would know there's somewhat of a joke in there, but I would probably not preach it the same way. Even a little bit before that in chapter 3, I thought it was cool and interesting, just the parallel of drying up the land in the Jordan so everybody can cross, like very uh, similar to it. Moses and the Red Sea and all that. And I assume that was just, you know, another sign to show that Joshua was was God's guy. Yeah, absolutely. He's he's a new Moses figure. That one doesn't get as much publicity though. I when I read that, I was like, did I ever remember that same thing happened to the Jordan River? I just always think of the Red Sea. I guess cuz Joshua didn't get a movie after him. <laughs> That's true. Well, we're transitioning to Luke eleven twenty nine through fourteen twenty four, and last week we did not spend much time talking about Luke because we spent so much time talking about Deuteronomy, and unfortunately we're somewhat in that position again. So we'll have to privilege the New Testament text maybe next time and spend a little more time on that. As we fast forward to the end of our reading for this week, we get to Luke fourteen, and Jesus has several comments about pride and humility, and some that are especially connected to house guests. I think it's interesting in chapter 14, verse 10, he tells people when they're invited somewhere to sit in the lowest place um, so that then if you're told to move, you get moved to a better place. So so just take the lowest place and, and be okay with that and, and humble yourself. And he uses it as an illustration of if you humble yourself, the only way to go is up, right? Yep. If you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. That's that's the option. Or you'll just stay where you're at, I guess. But that's the same kind of teaching James picks up on, on humbling yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Um, but then as we get to verse 12, 
He also said to the one who had invited him, When you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or your sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. I don't know if this was a dig at this Pharisee. I think maybe it is a little bit. So chapter 14, verse 1, one Sabbath, he went to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees. So perhaps he's sort of digging him like, okay, you've invited me because you want something out of me. And that's not the way of the kingdom. Like you've, you've missed it. You've missed the boat. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And again, I think this is probably a little bit of of a jibe towards this leading Pharisee. Probably, um, you know, this guy, again, is doing this to earn some some street cred. He has probably wealthy people there. Um, Apparently, also, there were people who were in need there, because in verse 2, there in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. In response, Jesus asked the law experts in the Pharisees. So there are rich and non-rich here. Um, But ultimately, as we start to think about this text for our own way of being, I don't think it's supposed to be applied only to meals and inviting people over to your home. I think it's uh, another kingdom principle about caring for those who can't give you something, right? So you don't relate to people based on what they can do for you, but you relate to them out of love, knowing that any repayment is a repayment from the Lord at the resurrection. But I think that there is an application for the way that we talk about hospitality. I think often we talk about hospitality is just opening up your home and having other people in your house and, you know, having a meal with them or something. And generally the way that this is practiced is, You have a friend at church and you send them a text message and say, hey, you should come over for dinner. And then the person replies saying, sure, what can I bring? And there's like a parody there. Uh, Both of you are in fine economic situations. And and I do this too. But I I think when we talk about that as hospitality, we're missing what hospitality is. We're, We're inviting people over who are not in need and who can pay us back. You know, we're it's not doing a service to somebody. But I think that's inherent in what hospitality is. And I think that comes through when we talk about hospitality services, right? Um, of course, they're getting paid for it, hotels and these sorts of things. But I think maybe this is a point where we all need to be pushed a little bit, especially in our world. When we start to look at the people who we've had into our homes are people who are in the same or better economic and social situations than we are. Instead of looking around and identifying individuals who can't pay us back and freely welcoming them in and serving them. I think that's good. 99.9% of the time we read the Bible, we are either reading it and seeing truth out of it and identifying where we already do that. And then we look outside of us and identify the people who don't do that and say that that's for them. Or we read it only in terms of like moral purity of some sort, like using speech correctly or being kind to someone or or not yelling, you know, like that kind of thing. And as soon as it gets to a spot where we would have to break from our cultural norms, that's when we don't want to obey it unless we're part of a subculture that disregards our cultural norms. So we're happy to read a text and apply it in terms of sexuality and go against the grain of our culture there. But as soon as we start talking about anything related to wealth and poverty or self-giving to those who can't repay us or um, anything like that, then we just want to leave those texts behind. And I think I, I do this all the time as well. Um, but as I was reading this and pairing that with my reading in James, I'm just thinking we've got to figure out what we're doing with the places that we live and our food and people that we have over Because I don't know about you, but probably most of the people we know are in similar social and economic situations as us. So this requires us, probably not as much as it would require the Pharisees, this leading Pharisee and the law experts, but it requires us to go outside of our normal social circles. So I don't know what this means for us to obey this or apply it or put it into practice, but I think it's a 
a good discussion for figuring out. I mean, I think on some level, we've seen this happen at our church when people have a pregnancy or are really sick or things like that, and we deliver meals to them. So, so I'm not trying to say that we're totally disregarding it, but I think maybe there's this is a, a place that we could think about. I would like to think about the term hospitality more because it seems like you want to define what that is a little bit from what we think or you, what you think we think it is. And I'm not sure what I think it means. And so like I'd maybe want to think about that a little bit more. Yeah, me either. I mean, we usually just say be hospitable. So this is an elder qualification, right? So 1 Timothy 3, 1, if anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable. So, I mean, at least elders are told to be hospitable. I don't know if other Christians are or not, though I would assume they should be. Yeah, Titus 1, 8, hospitable, lover of good, etc. Well, Rahab was hospitable to the spies. She was. Very. We, yeah. should, we should look to her. Wait. Wait, 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 though. I agree with you, but then the spies totally repaid her by not killing her. Or yeah, her she family. didn't. She That's didn't know. True. So the the word for hospitable. Uh, Hospitatus. No, it's philazinos. Oh. So you can hear the, the philo, the, the love, right? Phila, love, and zeno, xenos. Xenophobia is fear of outsiders, that sort of thing, right? So love of, of the other, love of the outsider. The related verb to that, it means to expend considerable effort. This term, philozenon, only appears three times in the New Testament, twice in the elder qualifications, and then once in 1 Peter 4, 9, where Peter says, be hospitable to one another without complaining. Ooh. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. So I think when we're talking about hospitality, or at least this Greek word rendered hospitality in the New Testament, it's not a mutual sharing in something. I think that's koinonia, right? That's participating in something. But I think it's an exerting of yourself for the other at expense to yourself. Fellowship would be? A mutual participation. Okay. Peers. And then... Yeah, there's parody. Right. Peers. So yep. and then love of the outsider would be someone who's not. Yeah. Peers. Okay. Yeah. Hospitality, self-giving, that kind of thing. I mean, I haven't done a study on this, but it seems like based on our quick looking up of the the only three times that this term shows up in the New Testament, twice it's in a qualification list for elders, which require, I mean, it's, it's not surprising because they have to uh, relate to the whole church. So they're not supposed to play favorites or, you know, only do things for people or shepherd people who are going to give something back to them, right? So it makes a lot of sense that it's there. But in First Peter, um, it's a command for all Christians, and you're supposed to do it without complaining, which gives the indication that probably our natural disposition when we're confronted with an opportunity to show hospitality is not to think of it as a good time hanging out with our buddies, but as something that requires effort and self-giving. I think in our English term, you know, the synonyms are friendliness or welcome or helpfulness. But as you look back to the origin of the word, you know, hospitality goes back to hospitalis, Latin, which is where we get our word hospital from. So that is not like a mutual participation in something. That's a service in a self-giving. Over time, this word was probably most popular ever in 1823, with major dip around the 1980s, and then it's increased a decent amount, especially around 2012, and has started to decline a little bit there. I'm going to cut that. People are going to tune out. What? No. Wait, wait. I that in there. Wait. I'm sorry. <laughs> I tuned out. What were you talking about? <laughs> the... The frequency of usage yeah. of, of hospitality? the term hospitality. Oh, okay. English. Most used in 1827, major dip down in the 1980s. Can you do it, that for any word? Yeah. The Ngram viewer. So they'll, they kind of are able to, I guess, based on all of their books, identify the frequency of usage over time. 
in this final chapter of Luke, it's pretty interesting how Luke has strung together a lot of scenes that are connected with banquet or meal imagery. And uh, Jesus is sitting down for a meal with this Pharisee, and then he gives this parable of, well, not so much a parable, but just a situational thought experiment of a wedding banquet and where you should sit if you're invited to that. And then he gives instruction about who you should invite to your banquets. And then he gets to a parable about a wedding banquet. Matthew, could you talk us through this? So quick anecdote from my past where I had thought I had a brief flash of this passage in my mind and it aided me. I was uh, preparing to go to the Eden Baptist Church men's retreat and I was riding with Paul Purdue in his then new to him suburban suburban I think he's got I think a suburban. suburban yeah so big vehicle a lot of seats there were about to be a lot of men piling in there and I thought to myself there's some gentlemen older than me pastor miller is also going to be riding in the vehicle I'm like I'm climbing in the back and then Paul's like what are you doing? Sit in the front. You're the tallest one. I'm like, there's other, I'm like, no, I'm like some, somebody else like let Pastor Miller sit up front. And he's like, no, you're the tallest one. You have long legs. You should sit up front. So I was like, okay. So, so you felt exalted. Yeah. Cause I was like, I'm, I would never just assume, oh yeah. And this car full of like seven other guys, I'm going to take the front seat. Like no way. But then I ended up being exalted. So it does, it does, uh, it does what the passage says. At worst, I would have been in the back seat where I was going anyways. Awesome. I'm serious. Biblical I, truth helping I, you out. I thought of this passage when I when I saw the vehicle and all the other people. I was like, I'm going in the back. Dude, that's good. You're thinking Bible. Yeah. I've, I've thought about that passage a lot. It's very helpful in everyday life. I think so anyways. Well, guys, it's been great to talk about the Bible with you. And for those who are listening along, we're glad you are reading through the Bible with us. And um, if you have questions or comments about the text that you would like us to address, either if you're looking ahead or you just feel like we missed something that you wanted us to talk about, you can email AJ or Matthew. Their emails are available in the church directory. This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church in Burnsville, Minnesota. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can go to resurrectionmn.org.